Welcome to the Crushing Cashflow Podcast, where we share phenomenal advice and dozens of decades of wisdom from investors and entrepreneurs of all types and all stages of their journeys. We'll cover many forms of cash flowing assets, such as real estate, stock investing, entrepreneurship, and general finance guidance. Listen in and learn from those who are crushing it out there, as well as those who have been crushed by business or their investments. Now, here's your host, Andrew Shutsky. Welcome back to Crushing Cashflow. Once again, I'm your host, Andrew Shutsky, and with me today is Ted Green. Here's a little bit about Ted. Ted spent 20 plus years as an investment advisor for Merrill Lynch and as chief compliance officer for a registered investment advisor. He started Torrent Investment Group after completing a sale of a self-directed IRA facilitation company to Yield Street in 2019 and currently manages the investor relations department at Spartan. So Ted, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for joining us. Andrew, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. It's fun. Absolutely. So, you know, a little background on how Ted and I met. I think we, we connected on a, a podcast host group where I was looking to do a kind of a little bit of, of pros and cons around commercial real estate investing versus the stock market. I'm a big believer in both. You know, obviously weighted a bit and biased towards the, the real estate side, but Ted's got a very, very many, many years, vast experience in both sides of the fence. So, so Ted, tell us first about Spartan. You know, what do you guys do and, and how did you get into it? Yeah. So Spartan is a syndicator. We typically look at anything from core plus to opportunistic in the self-storage space. As many folks know, self-storage is having its day in the sun. Yep. Things are going well currently, which makes me a little bit nervous about what comes next. But with that setting that aside, predominantly self-storage, we do have mobile home as well as RV park experience. We've got our own construction company, 70 some odd employees, and one of Inc. 5000s. I think we were the seventh fastest growing private real estate company in the trailing 12 months as of August or September. So we got ahead of steam. We're having a lot of fun. Awesome. Awesome. So let's talk about the market. You kind of foreshadowed this a bit. You know, Things are heated up, you know, self-storage and multifamily, even in the stock market. What's your take on where the market's going and, and what, you know, with interest rates, a big closely watched item and all that, what's your take on the current conditions and the outlook? Yeah. You know, that's such an interesting question and deserving of attention. I'll tee this one up by saying I have been dead wrong on interest rates for the last five years and, <laughs> and that you could even extrapolate that to six or seven years. There's several competing headwinds. One is the change that 401k plan administrators are allowed to make courtesy of a ruling change for ERISA plans that happened in August of 2020. So you've got the availability for, you know, your take your Fortune 500 company, Boeing or Caterpillar, you know, name your company. There, That 401k plan is now able to acquire specific properties, not acquire exposure to a publicly traded REIT, but actually buy a property inside the 401k plan. And that's courtesy of the plan administrator. So so there's there's an impact to real estate prices. Interest rates, obviously, the higher interest rates go, the more expensive it is to acquire a piece of real estate. So there's a competing headwind going in the opposite direction. And, and so, you know, where do prices go from here? You know, it's going to be topsy-turvy if we get into a secular, which defines secular, that's a long-term trend, a, a 15 or a 30-year trend. If we get into a secular 
inflationary environment, you know, we're going to have an adjustment to all risk assets. But at the same time, like I mentioned a moment ago, I've been dead wrong for five years. I remember a sales manager at one of my former employers who after 2000 and boy, I think it was 2004 when the dot-com bubble finally concluded in the stock market, finally got up off the floor and started to get going again. About 2004, 2005, he was dead sure that interest rates weren't going to go any higher. It was just dead wrong. (laughs) Here we are 20 years later, just totally dead wrong. So I think the answer to that question, Andrew, is don't make a directional bet with our collective net worths. Make a bet so that no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. Never get into a spot where you think to yourself, if this doesn't work out, I'm screwed. Because if if you find yourself in that spot, you're already kind of screwed. So I wouldn't try to make directional bets. I'd just try to diversify so that no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. That's a good, a good point. I want to dig in a bit on the 401k piece because that wasn't on my radar. So if you've got your board, your Boeing, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed, I'm, I'm using all the aerospace stuff, right? Yeah. I, I know that space pretty well. Is it up to the plan administrator as to whether or not they want to participate? Let's say you've got Vanguard and then they're you know, billions, if not trillions of dollars in assets. Is it up to the administrator to determine you know, which assets can be invested in or how does that work? Yeah. So the exposure to specific real estate can only be acquired through a life cycle funds. And a life cycle fund is, you know, the target date maturity of 2040 or 2045 or what have you. So the plan administrator, be it, well, whatever the plan administrator is, they've got to make that intentional decision. Okay, we're going to go out and acquire, you know, a minimum $250 million is, is where the private equity firms are, are kind of drawing the line. And the PE firms are the ones that represent the plan administrators. But they're going to go out and they're going to acquire a series of portfolios of assets, divvy that up to the various life cycle funds. And then each life cycle fund will have some amount of exposure to the real estate that has been acquired. And of course, you know, it's cumbersome to transfer into or out of a life cycle funds. You've got minimum holds, things of that nature. But it is, it's plan specific. The administrator is re- responsible for, you know, it's the prudent man rule that, that governs the allocation within those funds. So trying to keep the answer short as opposed to prolonged bottom line, yeah, it's the plan administrator d- decision. Makes sense. So you're you're talking about they might they would purchase assets to go into a plan, not allow individual 401k you know owners or employees to purchase assets, right? It would have to be through the fund, correct? Exactly. And it's not a menu item that you're going to find, you know, a Colorado-based you know multifamily apartment building that you can transfer ten thousand dollars into. That's not the way it works. If you move an allocation into the life cycle fund, the target date maturity 2040 or whatever the target date is, some percentage of that fund can have exposure to specific real estate assets. It's it is plant specific. So if the administrator, you know, this change just started last August of 2020. So it's still relatively new. And if you really think in the context of how big that pool of money is, how long do, does it take for, you know, think of an ocean freighter to, to turn direction. It takes a while to go through the due diligence, the compliance, set up the system. So it takes a while for those plans to get going. But the article I read was last winter, maybe 10 months ago now, 
you know, like 173 401k plans had gotten started, including, you know, the core four of commercial real estate into their asset allocation. And that's just, that is just not, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. That's like the image of the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot more money coming, especially when you think about interest rates go up, bond values go down. Well, yeah. if interest rates go up, stock PE ratios get compressed. We've seen that cycle a couple of times. So there's a lot of money that's going to be in motion, I think. Absolutely. And I can tell you, you know, as someone who's bidding on properties actively, it, we, we feel that competition and a lot of it is that, you know, sometimes it doesn't make sense in our underwriting and maybe their expectations are the bar is lower. If you're looking at, you know, value add or core plus and you're expecting, you know, double digit, 12, 13, 15%, you know, a lot of those guys might have a lower standard. At least it feels that way to me. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. they're underwriting too, but. Yeah. And then if their game plan is to exit that asset because they've moved it into a portfolio and they can exit with a cap rate of four or the yep. high threes, then you can kind of see what they're doing and why. But yeah, I mean, commercial real estate is not as easy as it you know lends itself to be. It's complex assets that you're dealing with, a lot of competing interests. Absolutely. That's an understatement, I'd say. So I want to go, I want to go back to you talked about diversification, big believer in that. I think that's the only way, right? So I would never advocate anybody to put all their money in stocks or just real estate. So you were in both worlds pretty deep in stock and commercial real estate side. What would you say the high level pros and cons are? How would you compare the two investing strategies? Yeah. So again, the complexity of that is it gets deep quickly. So take your your investor who my peer group, mid fifties, busy, starting to have a little bit of wiggle room in the finances, and you know you, you don't want to you don't want to spend all your time you know watching the balance sheet, watching the numbers. You want to go go play and have some fun. The source of income that is to meet your lifestyle and and maintenance needs. You know you want your passive income to exceed your lifestyle needs, but if you're in the stock market, you know. Stock yields are at best four. And if you've got a stock whose dividend is 4% of the stock price, you almost kind of wonder what's wrong with that stock? Why is it coming down so that the yield is as high as 4%? I mean, most stock dividends are you know yielding a half of 1% to maybe 2%. So if you're a stock market person, man or woman, stock market person, your stock portfolio, you know, you can lose 50% of that overnight. Yeah. You can lose yeah. 70% of that overnight. So you need to manufacture a stream of income before you retire. You know, so there's real complexity there. And it's just not possible. I mean, it's simply not possible to retire with a all stock net worth. You, you just, you're not going to have any income. Conversely, if you're too heavy on the real estate side of things, you know, 2008 to 2012, we didn't lose, you know, momentum with property values nearly the way we did back 1999 through 2003. I mean, commercial real estate just got pounded 20 years ago. 12 years ago, it held up really well. So from my perspective, the standard deviation of returns is much less from the commercial real estate side of things and your cash on cash distributions are much higher, but there's oh, yeah. the comparison by way of liquidity. The, I mean, you just don't have a marketable asset that you can log into you know, myonlinebroker.com and hit a button and raise 400,000 bucks you know, before 9 a.m. So there's, I mean, there's competing interest. There's real complexity. I'm, I'm drafting an article currently that that speaks to how I want 
for myself at least, how to orchestrate the composition of your net worth so that your 30 to 50% of your annual lifestyle and maintenance needs are derived from your commercial real estate holdings. Maybe you've got 15% cash of your net worth just sitting there, which can give you two or three years of lifestyle and maintenance need. And then you've got your life settlement options and, and some stocks that mix up the difference. But like you mentioned, Andrew, diversity is a, is a huge piece so that no matter what happens, you're going to be okay. Yeah. And going back to your investment advisor days, you know, what would your strategy look like if you got a new client? Is it age profile based? Is it risk based? Is it, you know, how do you, how do you set up a strategy for a new client in that, in that scenario? Yeah. Well, you know, the good thing is, and I just to recap, I was at Merrill Lynch for nearly 17 years. I was at UBS for three years and registered investment advisor for six and change. The astounding thing is that even though the Wall Street firms will get their names in the paper occasionally and because their hand is slapped for some reason, in all reality, those firms are packed to the gills with very sincere, well-intentioned people. So in other words, they find a way to manufacture products that can give to the investor what the investor is looking for. So on the equity side of things, you can sell call options, you can buy put options and give yourself some protection so that you've got some income from the premium from those options and you've got some amount of certainty by way of a positive rate of return. So when you're dealing in the options market and you're long a put, your asset that you've acquired is going up when the security value is going down. That's a lot of $20 words right there. But in essence, what I said was you can manage the risk profile for the investor and give them the income that they're looking for to a degree. Now, it's it's not quite the same is if you own commercial real estate and you're getting a, a 7% cash on cash plus some upside in the asset value, but you can manufacture the income that the investor is after. So getting back to your question, the Wall Street firms, they're very good. They're very smart at deriving and manufacturing what it is that the investor needs. And of course, the compliance rules the day they've got to keep an eye on suitability. And if it's a registered investment advisor, which is a fiduciary, and that's dissimilar from the broker-dealer world, the fiduciary has to do what is in your best interest, and they have to maintain a file on why the security that they're recommending is the best security for the situation that they can possibly find. So it's a higher higher watermark for the RIA than for the broker-dealer. Suffice it to say, risk-appropriate recommendations are what the broker-dealers work with and the RIAs work with you know, hard and fast. This is, without any question, the best investment that I can recommend to the investor for the given situation. It does take into account the age-weighted risk factors, and, and you just got to marry all of that stuff together and you know produce a portfolio recommendation that makes sense for the investor. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It's a great insight, Ted. I mean, if you had to boil it down to you know two tips for someone looking to build passive income or work towards retirement, what would they be? Yeah. So, so number one, acknowledge to yourself, the investor, acknowledge to yourself, do I love to win more than I hate to lose? And the corollary to that is, do I hate to lose more than I love to win? So that's the first thing. 
decide which of those two categories you're in. And for myself, I had a large, a significant loss that my wife and I experienced with the business that we invested in. And prior to that, I love to win more than I hate to lose. And that was, even though I'd gone through the dot-com bubble in the 2008 to 2012, I was still decidedly, you know, I love to win. I love to take that risk. After the business failure, the switch flipped for me. And now I hate to lose more than I love to win. I would rather plug along and not be the guy at the party that's talking about my great stock market, whatever achievements. I'm just more decidedly, I hate to lose more than I love to win. So that's number one. Which of those two categories are you in? Number two, remember the golden rule that concentrated positions build wealth diversified positions protect wealth. That marries very well back with the concept, don't make a directional bet with interest rates, make a bet so that no matter what happens, be it interest rates, commodity prices, you know, what have you, stock market valuation, no matter what happens, those diversified positions protect wealth. So if you marry those two concepts together, you're going to be just fine. That's really great. Now, I'm assuming yeah, it's funny how those types of events you mentioned 2008, 2009, or business investments can really change your outlook on things, right? Boy, you're not kidding. <laughs> yeah. Do you have any books you'd recommend that were influential or, or influential figures or, or mentors you'd want to call out? You know, so I am a huge fan of Ray Dalio. Ray has, you know, oh man, I got to hover on this point here for just a minute, Andrew. <laughs> so some people, my wife is a great example. She's a director at a publicly traded company of a cancer research. Seattle Genetics is the company. She's a smart woman, arguably a lot smarter than me. She just doesn't love the investing world, which is one of a variety of reasons why we're a good pair. I got her to stop and listen to Ray Dalio's, it's maybe 20 minute long animated video on how the economic machine really works. So if you're an investor who is very Pollyanna or very enamored with real estate, you know, I would encourage you to pump the brakes hard. Watch Ray Dalio's, that's D-A-L-I-O, how the economic machine really works. It's a YouTube video. And it talks about debt cycles and it talks about how the euphoria right before a peak can creep into all investors and it's just risk on maxed, you know, to a thousand. Ray Dalio is very insightful. He's preaching caution. I'm practicing what I preach by way of cautionary stance. So I think Ray Dalio is is my go-to person for that question. That's great. Everybody's got their name. He's one of the few I haven't read up on really. I've read, you know, people that listen to my show or listen to me in other shows know that I'm I'm a huge call myself a book nerd. I love to learn something new every day. And I haven't looked into Ray. I've seen him pop up on Amazon from time to time, but maybe it's time I'm overdue to dig in. <laughs> you know, he's up there with the Warren Buffett, Bill Gates wow. category, self-made man, really thoughtful person. Wow, that's great. So Ted, we're, we're getting near the end here. As we wrap up, those listening, you've obviously got decades and decades of wisdom and knowledge. And, and for those that want to contact you, maybe learn more, get to know about Spartan, how can they do so? Well, I like LinkedIn. So my name is Ted Green. I've got an E on the end of Green and my company, the company that I work for and part owner of is Spartan Investment Group. So you know, find us on LinkedIn, YouTube, Spartan Investment Group. You know, Either way is a great resource for just learning and finding us. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Ted, for breaking off you know, a few, decades of wisdom in a few minutes here, but I really appreciate you joining us. Thanks for the insights. 
I appreciate the opportunity to tell our story and connect with you, Andrew. It was a real pleasure. Great. Thanks, Ted. My pleasure. Thanks for listening in with us for another episode of the Crushing Cashflow Podcast. We have a small favor to ask of all of our listeners. Please subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Each subscription and rating will help us massively toward our goal of helping reach as many listeners as possible each week. Thank you very much once again for listening. We're thrilled to have you with us as part of this journey, and we can't wait to share more of these stories with you. Stay tuned for much more to come.